Am I on? Am I on? Does that sound good? Um, hey, real quick, just because it's late in the afternoon, stand up um, real fast and just say something to the person next to you. Maybe shake their hand, touch a human being, um, feel the love. That's enough, that's enough love. Too much love. Uh, I want to I wanna thank you guys at Geneva. I don't know. How many people are not from Geneva? So a lot, a lot of people aren't from Geneva. So I want to thank, thank Geneva and friends then. If, hopefully you're friends of Geneva. Um, that counts. But uh, it's been really fun today. So the level of engagement here has been great. Um, and uh, it's always encouraging when you're around um, brothers and sisters in Christ and the conversation is rich and the conversation is deep uh, and there's respect even if there's disagreement. Um, what's hard is when you go to a Christian environment to talk about big things and people just seem completely disinterested. And, uh, and that hasn't been the case today. So it's been, been really fun. So thank you. Um, I want to start a couple slides that we didn't get to um, get to this morning that I thought based on some of the conversations we've had today would be fun to show, so kind of modified my PowerPoint for uh, this afternoon. Um, but this is my argument for why the conversation on justice is important. Um, I have four daughters, and uh, back to school shopping a number of years ago, I was just dying. Uh, the, the death that all dads do uh, during back to school shopping and then I stood up and turned around and looked at the, the shirt rack and saw this and I, I thought wow this is a great illustration and took a picture of it but justice is a brand mark made in Vietnam because it's cheaper uh, for little girls age 7 and the idea is to love yourself um, when Jesus defines love as uh, as being about giving yourself for the other. Uh, love is measured in terms of self-sacrifice. If you lay down your life for the other, that is the, the picture of true love. So the, the culture that we're in, the culture that shapes us, uh, us oftentimes as much as we shape it, is, is giving us a message that's really confused uh, about the things that should matter. Justice is a part of the heart of God. It says in the Old Testament, it's the scepter by which he rules. It's the footstool of his throne. You can't talk about God without having in your mind the idea of justice. Any more than you could talk about God by saying, um, somehow, like, imagine doing a Bible study and saying, we're going we're gonna to explore God for 10 weeks. We're going to come each week and talk about the nature and character of God. But just to make it fun for this Bible study, we're going to take his holiness and, and put it on the side. And then we're going to discuss what, what we can see of God. Or we're going to take 10 weeks and we're just going to take the love of God out and put it over here and then we're going to explore the rest. Um, it would be incoherent uh, to do that or to think that we could do that. The same is true with justice. It's part of the character of God. And there's a, a beautiful opportunity now that society is talking about justice for us to be able to go in and, and to listen, uh, to learn ourselves, to lament, but then also to try and uh, bring some words of clarity uh, or illumination. But, but it's confused. Um, this is what I mentioned earlier today. Not just a painting of a European God, but really... Um, something that broke the mold and created a mental image uh, of God the Father that has lived on in, in Western art and certainly Western religious contexts. Most of us probably remember seeing this picture somewhere uh, in school growing up. And, and it's hard to get some of these things 
uh, these category creators uh, out of our thinking once they're there. Um, this is the Last Supper. I, I told you maybe I'd show it to you. Uh, do you see where Judas is? In the lower left, uh, to the left of Jesus. Um, I, don't, I don't believe Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code, so that's, I don't think that's a woman next to Jesus. But, uh, but in front of the person to Jesus' left is Judas. Uh, and Judas looks like a Palestinian in the time of Da Vinci. Uh, what he would have thought of as the Jews, the, the Christ killers. Um, and the rest, obviously, would have been the peers and, and, in his mindset, the church of that day. But these things come into our, our mental frameworks, these ideas or notions uh, of color. Um, I'm sure you've heard of implicit bias, the, the way your mind naturally tends to bend without even you thinking about it, right? Um, you see steam when you're a kid, you touch and you burn yourself. Um, the next time you see steam, you don't touch and you don't burn yourself. Your brain creates shorthand to help you navigate thoughts. And when racial um, or uh, uh, stereotypes get into our thinking at early ages through TV, through media, uh, through society, and it begins to create shorthands, little, little pre-programmed kind of ways of doing things, um, that's implicit bias and it, and it functions um, and all of us in some, to, to some extent. And just trying to show that this is long and deep uh, kind of in the history of, of Western um, culture and thought. Uh, this morning I talked about Jubilee. Uh, someone came up and asked me, um, did that ever actually happen historically? And it's a great question because theologians debate this and they think there's a chance that it actually never happened um, in the history of Israel. Uh, and so um, in, a, in the conversation with this woman, I, for, I realized I forgot to say the great irony is that although Jubilee, this, this, the, the transcendence and imminence of God, this marrying together of, of the vertical and horizontal, the earthiness of spirituality, although it may never have actually happened in the history of Israel, it did actually um, happen. Because when Jesus read from the Isaiah scroll in Nazareth, he stood up and went to uh, Isaiah 50, um, I'm sorry, Isaiah 61, and he read this, that the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight uh, for the blind, to set the oppressed free. And then here's that phrase, the, uh, the year of the Lord's favor is what Jubilee is referred to. And so Jesus says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So what we may have never done as the people of God or religious people um, uh, in, in history, Jesus stands up and says, in your presence this day, I am fulfilling the heart of God for this. Um, in a very literal sense, Jesus is saying the transcendence of God, the imminence of God that pours itself out in self-giving love is actually now happening. It might not have happened when you all were in charge of it, but I'm here to inaugurate it. And so there's this historical fact uh, that's beautiful um, that we get to see uh, in Luke chapter 4. Um, and by the way, when he was done with all of that, um, they took him to the brow of the hill as, and they were going to stone him. Uh, this is the people that Jesus grew up with. Um, Nazareth might have only been about 300 people in the time of Jesus. So when they say, isn't this Joseph the carpenter's son? You're talking about an average family size of 10, maybe 30 families. The, the, the tightness of that little community and for Jesus to come back and to, to try and tell them what was what. Um, so the whole idea of the year of the Lord's favor ends with Jesus almost being thrown off the brow of the hill. It's no surprise when we go to talk about the 
the earthiness, the tangibility, the goodness uh, of the gospel, of God's heart, of love, of, of justice, that there's a reaction oftentimes from the people we know, from the people we, we think would receive that message, from the people that we think in some sense have the faith where that message should be imprinted already. Um, so just kind of giving that by way of context. But here's what we're going to do now. Um, audience participation. Uh, why don't you stand? And it's going to be 10 minutes of standing. But we're going to read all of the bold parts uh, of these verses um, and we're going to see something that I, I hope will be a paradigm shifter uh, for you out of the scriptures. So this is, uh, this is a lot of Bible study in, in a short amount of time, but here we go. So we're going to read the bold um, from one slide to the next. And uh, I'll start us now. <clears throat> I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All nations on earth will be blessed through him. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I raise you up for this very purpose, that I might show my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. So that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. That your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. God will bless us and all the ends of the earth will fear him. And all nations will serve him. All the nations are your inheritance. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The nations will fear the name of the Lord. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. All the and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. My name will be great among the nations. My name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Go and make disciples of all the nations. And the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will rise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. 
Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel, so that all the nations might believe and obey him. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. Because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude, and no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nation will walk by its light, and the kings of earth will bring their splendor into it. All right, you can be seated. That is not all of the verses that talks about the nations. There are dozens more, some of my favorite ones, Isaiah 59, Isaiah 41. We see them in, in so many different places. Um, I'm uh, trying to figure out how to use a PC. I haven't done this in 20 years. Um, can I jump to a different slide? Um, I don't know what I just did. All right, I'm just going to leave it. Um, Romans, uh, now who is able to establish you by my gospel, this mystery that's been long lost for, for ages, and the prophetic writings bring it forward so that all the nations might believe and obey in him. The Greek word for, for nations here is ethnos, where we get ethnicity. The idea is that the gospel necessarily, the gospel story necessarily includes the nations, the ethnicities, the peoples, the colors, the tribes, the tongues, meaning the languages. Culture is mostly carried in language more than anything else. It's the cultures, it's the variety, it's the diversity of the whole earth, even the islands that seem like they're excluded or disconnected, that somehow the light of Jesus will be a light in those islands, that even the islands look to and, and long for the hope of salvation. Um, Galatians, same idea, Paul saying here, that the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. There's a way of, of saying the gospel that talks um, about Jesus implicitly but zooms out and says, here's what it's going to accomplish. The good news, the gospel, is that everything is flipping and all the nations, all the ethnos will be blessed through you, through Abraham and God's promises to him. 
that there's something about all of these verses that, that we disconnect in our typical Bible study uh, and, and way of going through Scripture, that we somehow segment and parse out and zoom all the way into a word or a part of a sentence. And if you took my whole talk today and you zoomed into a word or a part of a sentence and said, I'm really going to dive deep into this and get the heart of the message, you might actually carry uh, some of the truth or some of the information that I'm trying to bring. But you could look at a, a summary statement of what I'm trying to do, what my motive is, what my purpose is, and in some ways know a whole lot more even though those words might not even show up in my talk. And what we see about the gospel here is when we zoom out and look what God is doing uh, for the nations, what God is ultimately going to do through Jesus Christ and how all of this comes together, it's a picture of the church that I didn't grow up with. It's a picture of diversity that does not make it a side issue, a justice issue, a programmatic issue, a civil rights issue. It makes it all of those, but something so much more central. It's a part of the vision of the gospel as all people come together and find oneness in Jesus Christ before God. Um, But I want to go a little bit deeper because we have this this mythology of, of colorblindness or that, that if we're all to arrive at oneness that we're going to obliterate differences along the way. Um, and we don't. We don't not see people for who they are. We don't not um, notice the experiences and the stories. We don't um, leave that off. In all of that difference, we come together and forge a oneness and forge a unity because our hearts want to love rather than to be against. And so we have to kind of combat what does the, the New Testament look like when it's trying to explain this vision of the gospel. So this is Acts chapter 2. But think of the nations, the, the ethnos that is present, Parthians, Medes, Alamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asias, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them. Uh, All of these people hear the disciples. We hear them, the disciples, declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. That it's not Peter that preached on, on Pentecost. It's the Holy Spirit that preached through all of those disciples in languages that people understood, their heart language, their native tongue. And that was where the gospel first came. The commentary was from Peter afterwards. Um, Peter led the altar call. He's the one that, that brought them into baptism. But evangelism starts. Witness starts. The program of God starts with the Holy Spirit in a way that nobody could have fathomed. A miracle, if you will. And it's not um, going to one person then to translate out. It's going simultaneously. Not one language prioritized uh, and going first, and then the others secondarily getting it off that language. But at the same time, simultaneously, this is going out in everyone's native tongue. Think of that. What are the theological implications? You are at the table. You are primary. You are not forgotten. You are seen. You're not secondary. And so we see something crazy here, but we also... Oh my gosh, I really probably screwed this up. Resume. Um, what we see with Pentecost, uh, that 
that at Pentecost you see that people hear um, the wonders of God. At Pentecost, people hear the wonders of God proclaimed in their own tongue. That's the beginning of the gospel vision. What began as a a gospel exercise uh, or a multicultural um, exercise finishes with a multicultural worship reality when we get to heaven and we see that from every nation, tribe, people, and language, they're crying in a loud voice that salvation belongs to our God, um, our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Think of that, Pentecost to Revelation. We usually take one and look at it, or the other and look at it. But what was a multicultural expression in the first instance ends up as multicultural worship in the final instance. That God begins something through the Holy Spirit that is truly multicultural in all the languages, and that that finds its consummation, its, its final expression in a multicultural worship service. So when we talk about multicultural, it's, it's really interesting that we think of that as a side subject, that, that church looks like this, but there are some churches that try to do something different. Uh, I went through seven years of seminary, and other than hearing about maybe multi-ethnic or multicultural or diverse uh, a couple of times about a church in New York or, or a church trying to do something different, we always talked about church, period. And the assumption was church looked like what we've all experienced it to look like, dominantly one culture, and that's perfectly okay. We need to figure out how to grow that thing, how to administrate that thing, how to disciple people within that, but, but only in a fringe way do we talk about multi-ethnic or multicultural. After reading all those scriptures, after looking at what's going on in the early church, what I'm hoping you're beginning to think is that the norm should be a multi-ethnic, multicultural church expression. And that if a church looks like a bunch of people from the same um, socioeconomic, the same racial, same ethnic, that if it's monocultural, we ought to walk in and, and be able to say to them, what happened here? What, what happened that all y'all looking the same, ended up in this place together. Did you screen at the door? Did you, did you have a, like, was there some kind of filtration process? So somehow the church in America took something that should be so normative, and we made it something on the, on the edges, on the margins. And somehow if we can flip that back around, I think it'll begin to open us up to realize, boy, we really have to have a lot of conversations about race, about multi-ethnic, about multicultural, about what that means, about seeing each other, about going through the hard conversations to find unity amongst the differences, because that is the vision, the gospel vision for the church. Um, This is the Greek interlinear, um, but there's this interesting thing that happens in in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 you see that the Greek-speaking widows, so this, this multicultural church erupts in Acts chapter 2. And then all of a sudden you get multicultural church difficulties because you had people that were in charge of handing out the money that spoke a language, were from a culture, that had cousins, had relations, had comfort level with, with the dominant language, dominant cultural language. And the people that were on the edges that didn't speak that language, they didn't have any cousins there, didn't have any comfort there. It, it wasn't maybe what they saw first. And so they were overlooking handing out alms to the widows that spoke Greek. 
And so the disciples look at this uh, and they take it and wrestle with it and they, they, they bring forth seven leaders that they call deacons. We've had that now for 2,000 years. Deacons and deaconesses, right? Uh, and those people were charged to go and address that situation. It wasn't until a year and a half ago that, that a 70-year-old Latino pastor from New York City pointed out to me, um, who do you think those people were that they chose, Ken? And I had never actually asked that question. I'd never looked at it. But if you go in the Greek text, I highlighted the first one, more famous one. Stephen is a Greek name. Stephanos. Uh, look at the rest of them. Philip. Greek name. Alexander the Great's dad was Philip of Macedon. Philip, Greek name. Uh, the rest of these names are Greek. Uh, a proselyte of, of Antioch. These are Greek-speaking or Greek-cultural individuals that were raised up to meet Greek needs. One of the things that white leaders, when we're talking about multicultural and multi-ethnic, need to learn um, is, one, that we have to sit under uh, leaders of color and communities of color and be mentored in areas that we weren't trained in our leadership training. Um, there, are, there are gaps in our leadership kit. Um, secondly, there are some things that we can't do no matter what our heart feels. Uh, there are needs that people of color have that only leaders of color can meet. Um, so no matter what my felt compassion, mercy um, side is, there are some areas where I have to decenter myself and go, there has to be empowerment of leadership that rounds this out if we're going to really meet the needs of people in the appropriate way. But this is a fascinating thing. Let me take it just a step further because I think it's really interesting. Uh, a persecution breaks out after Stephen gets martyred. Um, Jesus almost got stoned. Um, Peter and James, uh, Peter and John almost got stoned. Uh, Paul almost got stoned a bunch of times. But Stephen got stoned. You know, it was illegal in, in Jerusalem for the Jews to stone someone. That's why Caiaphas sent Jesus to the Roman authorities. Pontius Pilate had taken away the death penalty from the Jewish people and reserved it for the state. So they did not exercise with Jesus the stoning that, that their law would have decreed and instead trusted the Romans because they didn't want to anger the Romans. With Stephen, the mob goes uh, berserk and they break into their old form and they themselves stone Stephen. You think ethnicity had anything to do with it? So then there's a persecution that breaks out. Um, persecution, uh, I told you about the, the Great Migration. Um, there's different waves of the Great Migration. Evidently in this area, this is first uh, Great Migration zone in terms of World War I and after, afterwards. Um, you had the first couple waves going late 1800s all the way up, but the first Great Migration, uh, World War I and, and following, and the second Great Migration going to Portland and Seattle for shipbuilding. Um, but that this wasn't a migration. This was... Uh, a, a mass movement of internally displaced people that were fleeing violence uh, and being uprooted. Um, so interestingly, there's a echoes of this with the persecution that breaks out in Jerusalem when a Greek-speaking Christian was stoned. Now, if, if I go just a little bit further, um, when, when Paul writes back uh, about how he's preaching the gospel at Antioch, and there's this thing called the, the Jerusalem Council. Um, 
he goes back and who's at the Jerusalem council? Peter's at the Jerusalem council. James, the brother of Jesus, is at the Jerusalem council. They have all these elders or leaders that live in Jerusalem and come together as a, as a leadership, like a de facto leadership for the church. So wait a second. I thought there was a persecution. I thought I grew up hearing that there was this massive persecution that scattered all of these leaders because it was too dangerous for them to be there where Stephen was stoned. But they're in Jerusalem. They're Aramaic-speaking Jews that have cousins, that have family, that know the culture, that know the power structures, that, that know how to navigate, that are able to live, that are able to be in network and relationship, and that's their home base. There's, a, there's an ethnic story running through the Gospels and Acts that I was never taught. It's, it's a part of the, the color and the nuance and the texture of these stories. But since ethnicity has been, been robbed from us culturally, historically, we go to Scripture and we don't see that that same struggle is playing out in different ways and leading to um, the story, our story, the church story. So if we go from, from this to... Uh, Joppa. This is Joppa two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, took this picture. Joppa is right on the shoulder of Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv never used to be there. Joppa is the old city. Now Joppa is basically just a, in some ways a suburb of, of, of the bigger Tel Aviv. But Peter is staying here when Peter has a dream after a Roman centurion, Caesarea, had a dream. And Peter had this dream that all these animals are coming down on the sheet and that God says, eat. And he's like, no, I've never eaten what was unclean. I wouldn't do what would make me ritually unclean or um, basically cause me to lose my purity. If I lose my purity, I can't be in relationship with you, God. I can't be close to you. I would never eat those things. And the vision says, take and eat. What I have made clean is clean. And so Peter goes... Uh, to Caesarea because uh, the centurion sends for him to bring him forward and then the centurion says I had this dream to send people to go find you in Joppa at Simon the Tanner's house I sent for you here's what happened and this is Peter's reaction I now realize how true it is what those scriptures always said that that I learned as I was growing up um, and memorizing the Torah I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. That last little bit is, and does justice. Um, the Jerusalem council in, in Acts 15, when they write back to Paul and say, we're okay with what you're doing, we're okay with what you're doing as long as you remember the poor. Um, these things always end up being connected. So we see that, that Peter, who Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church, goes and sees that the Holy Spirit comes to the Gentiles, to the nations, to the different ethnicity, to the oppressor. And that it is no longer an inclusive faith just for those people. It was for all people. And there was some sense in which there needed to be a letting go and to let the Holy Spirit take and do what the Holy Spirit was going to do. And it might look different. And it might feel different. And it might, uh, might cause discomfort. But that somehow that's what the church was supposed to become. And Peter sees this. The other thing that's interesting with that is, um, do you remember where Jonah sailed from? 
Joppa. Jonah was called to go to the Ninevites. The Ninevites were the oppressor. Jonah was supposed to go and preach to them the good news that God would, would deliver them, uh, preach repentance. And Jonah runs from the, uh, the task of preaching to the oppressor because he knows that God is good and God will forgive them. He sets sail from Joppa. Um, and then remember, God brings him back. He preaches. There's repentance. And God somehow, before even Jesus, accepts the Ninevites and shows them his mercy or his favor because that is the heart or the character of God. And all nations has been his plan. All nations has been his good news from all the way when he, he promised it to Abraham and before. And so the interesting thing of this is that it wouldn't have been missed on the Jewish audience when Jesus looks at Simon when he says that he's the rock and he's going to build this church and says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Why did God appear to, 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 to Peter in a dream in Joppa? Couldn't he have appeared to him in a dream in Jerusalem or on the way to some other city or, or something else? God knew what God was doing And he wanted us to see that he has always been about this work. It is not a fad. It is not a program. It is not something politically correct. God is working out his salvation for the nations so that we collectively would come. And in our difference, but with oneness of spirit and love, worship him. Paul says it this way, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you all one in Christ. He talks about um, ethnicity, he talks about socioeconomic, and he talks about gender. There is equality amongst the races or ethnicities, amongst the different socioeconomic strata, and amongst the genders, that we're not going to preference one thing over the other. But there is now a church that is built around the cornerstone of Jesus, and there is not one group that is more important than the other. Um, This book, Galatians, was actually written to the people of Galatia because some people had come to them and were preaching a gospel that was going back to the law, which basically meant you need to become a Jew first and a Christian second. You culturally need to become a Jew, and then you can receive Jesus as the Messiah. What Paul had been preaching was, no, you don't culturally have to become anything different. Who you are, your ethnicity, your nationality, your culture, your tongue, you go to Jesus, and the gospel doesn't require your works. The gospel is something you receive that is through grace and and apprehended by faith. And this is kind of the conclusion statement that he comes with. There are three different kinds of of multicultural churches or or multi-ethnic. These slides are not mine, but I can't remember the professor where I got them from. Just know I don't claim them, but they're incredibly helpful, and you'll find the same language uh, in a hundred different places. But there's one level of, of doing diversity, and it's called assimilationist. There's one dominant culture. Uh, it's colorblind. We talk about hospitality, and there's, there's really uh, low cultural change. This is often what happens now in churches. The leadership wants to see diversity, but not hear it. The voice disrupts and demands change. But to see it allows us to tell a story about this. By the way, Christian colleges are the same way. It starts with wanting to see diversity. But, but not really wanting to hear the voice 
that says there are things about the way this culture is framed up or the structures and the way the power is, is done that actually does something. So we're raising our voice. The voice is disruptive. This is assimilationist. You can have a church with a lot of different ethnicities, but if it's a white dominant cultural expression, it's, it's an assimilationist church. Um, there's a second level, and that's pluralist. And that's basically a, a multi-ethnic, multi-congregational church. So we have the Latinx service that happens at this time. We have the dominant culture service that happens at this time. We have uh, this other service that happens at this time. And the 20-somethings have their own church service, and, and it's, it's on Sunday nights. I don't know. Um, and it has better coffee. Um, <laughs> But that's multi-congregational. So we, we, under the larger umbrella, have a lot of things going on, but nobody's actually learning about each other's cultures or being willing to lay down any of their own cultural preferences or norms. There's a, a third, and that's the integrationist. This is what a true multicultural church would be, that it's unity and diversity, that we're aware of the differences and the different voices, that we go slow, and hear that and work with that, um, that there's uh, representation in leadership, there's representation and power in decision-making. Uh, it creates a new space, that space called D, uh, where in one room we have different ethnicities, different cultures, and we're naming that and taking that into account. We might actually do something, uh, some, some things in other people's languages because there are people in the room that have a different heart language or first language. And so we're taking and going slow to make sure that everyone um, is feeling honored, that basically the way we would treat it at our dinner table if we're having a diverse group over is how we're now doing a church service like this. And the goal here is, is to be really purposeful about kingdom diversity. If we do church this way, this is going to be true. So Paul is one of my, uh, my co-leaders. We have a leadership team of four. Uh, Paul Choi is one of the most amazing human beings I've ever met. He's brilliant. Um, he's first-generation Korean. Uh, and he did his doctorate on the multicultural church, really the Korean diaspora church. So the Korean church as it's left South Korea and shown up in all different forms. And uh, this is what Paul states. He says, in a multicultural church service, Everybody needs to feel some kind of inconvenience. Why do you think that is? Here's why it is. Because if you're not feeling any inconvenience, then that means the whole service is built around your cultural norms. So if you're actually going to say we're going to have a multicultural church service, then you're saying implicitly, or, or hopefully we're being discipled into a place where we're, we're all coming and saying it's not all about me and I'm entering into a space where there are some things that, that are my norm and there are some things that are the norm for others but the beautiful thing is that we're here together and whether um, I like the worship or not whether I like the sermon or not we all come to the table and the table is the one consistent thing from week to week that when we all come to the table and receive that's where we find our unity and so we're not coming as consumers. Um, we're coming as individuals that really believe it's Jesus' church. And that if Jesus was calling us on that Sunday morning, he'd be calling a lot of us that, that look and, and think and act um, and feel differently. 
In fact, Jesus told parables about this, right? Maybe not at the ethnic level so much as the socioeconomic level. But the king was going to give a great feast. Not everybody was as, uh, excited about it because they were, they were comfortable. And they didn't need to, to change the plans on a Saturday night and add one more thing. Life was good. Um, so there wasn't really something that was being offered by that Saturday night banquet that really um, ultimately changed or communicated respect. And so the king says, all right, throw it open and go to everyone, all of the people, and you invite them, but I know there are people that are going to want to be here, and they can come. Our church, we've got an elder by the name of Kamal. Kamal is, uh, works at Intel. He's an evangelist. Um, he's Indian, uh, East Indian, and um, he's an incredible leader, but he is an evangelist. And he and his wife, um, Betsy, they go to college kids at all the colleges uh, in the greater Portland area and help pull together um, international students and help be a family to them when they're in the hospital, when they got no one to call because their extended family's all back home. But Kamal and Betsy have been at our church village for eight plus years. They drive over an hour to get there every time they come. Um, with traffic going up to 217, if you know Portland, um, it could be an hour and a half or longer. And they come to our church because there's nowhere else for them to go where there's a multicultural or multi-ethnic church that they can be a part of and raise their kids in. But I'll have people that'll come to me and get frustrated. Why do did, why did we sing that verse in Spanish? Why do we have on the slides every week three different languages uh, for all of the sermon, all of, all of the worship song verses? Uh, why did the, the, the Latino church's... Um, Children come in and dance. Um, we're Baptists. We don't dance, right? Like, why did... I'll have people come to me and go, you know what? I'm thinking about going to this church down the road where, where, where it's the it church. And my conversation um, really is something like this. Like, you know what? There are 15 churches within five miles that you could choose to go to. And you're going you're gonna to make that choice based on worship or kids' ministry or high school ministry or the sermons or the building or all these other things. But you've got options. That's a privilege that you have because all you're thinking about is having church in your culture. You're not recognizing that you have something at this church that you can't find at those other churches that is actually more beautiful. You are being called into a space that is not centered around you. And you get to learn from people that are not like you. And you get to worship with people that are not like you. You get to celebrate in a way that is a foretaste of what's going to be in heaven. And you get to lay something down. That's called love, by the way. And know the joy that comes from love, from self-sacrifice. But you haven't been taught, forgive me, forgive us, the church. You have not yet been taught or discipled that it is not all about you and and that somehow it's sacrifice because you're thinking in terms of consumeristic um, categories for church. And I, I... I I think about that as somebody that's been in the religious business. All of Jesus' harsh words were to Doug um, or other people in the religious business and me. But that's that's a lot to bear to go, we are shaping. And when we look at people and go, you're still thinking like a consumer, we can back up and go, well, the last 10 years, all we thought about was in terms of church growth and creating programs that would meet the consumer felt needs of the people. So who really is at fault here? 
we haven't created the context or taught the theology that would somehow allow people to make decisions to see the beauty uh, of what that church looks like. Isaiah 51, 4 through 5. This is kind of the gospel in a nutshell for me. Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. Instruction will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way. And my arm will bring justice to the nations. One breath of God. And he's talking about ethnicity, which today would be race. They didn't have the color thing the same way back then. But ethnicity, race, different nationality, tongues. We've got the nations. We've got righteousness. We've got salvation. We've got justice. It's one big amalgam. It's good news. It's something that we can hunger and thirst for. It's something that Jesus is proclaiming that we can get excited about. And so as we leave today, this conversation that really began on race... What what I really want to leave you with is this is not just a side conversation. This is not a conversation we need to wait for people to come and bring to us. There's something rich in the texture of Scripture that if we really pursue it, we can find, and it'll shape our discipleship. It'll, It'll grow or enlarge our thinking, and we might actually get to enjoy more of the kingdom of God if we pursue things that way than if we just keep falling into the same culturally patterned ways of consuming religion. I I tell you what, I have been a part of, at times, I've been a part of the religious industrial complex. And I grew up thinking that leadership was, if I do good, I go up a ladder and and people will look at me a certain way and, and, and this is how it goes. And that is more an American leadership model that's being taught through the church than the way that Jesus taught about laying down your life and you must suffer for my name. So do we want the truth or do we want to to keep hearing the thing that allows us to push away the truth and feel justified just as we are Uh, rather than coming to Jesus just as I am? Um, That's that's all I've got. I have no idea what time it is. Um, I don't know if we have time for one or two questions. I don't know if I'm going to miss my flight. Um, We got time for two questions. Um, if, uh, if someone wants to, to volunteer a hand. But have got time for two questions, and, and uh, this has been great. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we talked a lot about race and getting into the question of conversation of racism um, and learning a lot about that. If you could tell us to do any one or two action steps moving yeah. forward, how would you recommend we take this into tomorrow? Real quickly, uh, the question is, so now what? Um, If this is a newer conversation to you or if you're dominant culture, um, stop, listen, learn, lament. Do not do. Um, Yet. Uh, And and go find some of your friends um, and and sit underneath them and go, how are you experiencing things? Have you experienced things? What have I not seen that you're, you're going through dealing with? How would you want me to come alongside you as a friend? And what would be some things that you would not want me to do? Um, do not run forward in your compassion. We are type A Americans. Uh, we are bleeding hearts. We try to fix everything. Uh, you are not going to fix 500 years of, of injustice, oppression, Uh, and pain 
uh, by people of color in this country um, in a short amount of time just because, because uh, there's emotion there. So stop, listen, learn, and lament. If you're um, a student of color, do not grow weary in doing good. Um, find each other, hold each other up. Um, that's Galatians. Uh, so Paul, writing to the churches in Galatia that were, were wrestling this tension out, do not grow weary in doing good, for at the proper time, if you do not give up, you will reap a harvest. Right? Um, but find a way to, to, to hold each other. Um, by the way, if you're a dominant culture student and you're just coming to school here and this is a side issue that you jump in and out of, there, there's a weight that your fellow students carry um, if, if they are the minority on this campus. The way they experience things, that this conversation for them is, is not one they jump in and out of, that they're always in some ways put in the position of having to teach or encourage others that might know less. There's an extra weight or burden that, that gets carried um, that they need you to be aware of um, as, as part of knowing them and loving them. Um, those are a couple things I'd say. That's a, that's a great question. Thank you. One last question. Yes. Yeah. So cultural appropriation, it's a great question. Um, cultural appropriation is a, a model dressing up like a Native American for a photo shoot. If she's not Native American or he's not Native American. Um, cultural appropriation is Halloween and, and putting your kids in cultural costumes. Um, but in a church service where we are brothers and sisters, but we come from different cultures, and we're trying to, in, in an honorable way, respectful way, honor those different traditions and cultures, there's an implicit invitation there where, where those individuals or that minority group or minorities are saying, um, I want you to, to learn how good it is to worship according to gospel music or to learn how to move your feet and dance uh, or to live in the moment like, like the Latino culture, Latinx culture in the church or to, with reverence, like the Korean culture that prays at 5 a.m., six days a week, um, to, to understand the, this, this, the holiness of God that way. There's an invitation there that I think brings freedom. Uh, in, in the body of Christ, where Christ is, there is freedom. The law um, kills freedom. Grace brings freedom. So I think it's just really, at the end of the day, about being in relationship uh, and then not having that fear. But doing it outside of relationship uh, is, is where we run into trouble these days. Hey, I, I really appreciate... Um, I, I really appreciate um, the invitation, being here with y'all. I, I heard there's a way of saying y'all that's uniquely West Pennsylvania. What is it? Yitz? Yins? Yiz? Um, so that's culture. Um, and I'm, I'm not getting it right. Someone has to, to educate me. Cultural intelligence. Um, hey, can I pray for us? And then uh, I think there's one, or no, there is a closing prayer coming. I don't want to, I'm allowed to pray. <laughs> Father God, I, uh, 
I pray along with my brothers and sisters. We are not to bring the light to the nations. We're to remember that we received the light. Uh, we all are, this, most of us in this room, the secondary nations that received the good news. There's a humility, Father, I pray that we would have that we're, well, we received the light, we're, we're among the nations, and we get to continue to be a witness uh, to and, and amongst the nations together. Uh, I pray that, that this school would be uh, one that could, could be a trendsetter someday, um, tackle difficult things even though they're hard out of love for one another, that there would be listening, that there would be learning, that there would be engagement. Um, I thank you for the people that worked really hard to put on an event that they would find rest. For the, 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 the people here that learned all day, listened all day. Father, that you would strip everything away except for the one or, or, or few things that you would want people um, to take deep. And that, that somehow we would all go out and be able to feel the encouragement of, of the gospel. That there is forgiveness, that there is acceptance, that there is power. Um, that there is grace and that it abounds and that somehow because you've loved us first, we can love others really well. And let us know that joy, the desire to love others, the ability uh, to go out and lay our lives down. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Just a few things uh, to end the day. One is that if you are here at Geneva, we will have a debrief time that's available to anyone that just wants to process more or have a a space just to talk more about the things that you learned. And it'll actually be in the conference room back there in the corner Monday at 1010. I just want to thank a few people for uh, making this day possible. Uh, First is the Center for Student Engagement staff, the Diversity Student Leadership Team, public relations, events, housekeeping, audiovisual team, and uh, many others on campus who made this day possible. Then finally, I'd just like to invite up Leslie Moore uh, to close us in prayer. Uh, Leslie is a graduate student in the Masters of Higher Education program here at Geneva, and she's also a graduate assistant for us uh, with the diversity area in the Center for Student Engagement. Um, I wanted us all to stand up on our feet. Um, We heard a lot today. And it was pretty heavy, and um, it sounds kind of impossible sometimes. Um, um, but this song kept playing in my head um, over and over again as we're in our last session, and just us refocusing our hearts and our minds on the one who can bring it together, who can make it right. Um, and this song says he's a way maker. A woman named Sanash, a Nigerian woman, um, wrote this song, um, and it just—I'm just, just going to sing the chorus, and I want y'all to join in with me as we focus our hearts and minds on the one who can make this right. Waymaker, miracle work, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. You are the waymaker. 
maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. Close your eyes and sing it to him. You are way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. We call you Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are, that is who you are, this who you are, that is who you Father, we bow before you, saying that we can't do this on our own, that we are in need of you, that we need to listen to your voice, listen to your word, because you're calling us to more, that we are your people called by your name, and we're humbling ourselves right now and seeking your face and turning from wicked ways so that you can hear from heaven, forgive our sin, and heal our land. We need you, Father. So, Lord, I pray that um, the words that we heard today, that we won't be callous or arrogant, but that we'd humble ourselves before you, Lord. That we will humble ourselves and humble ourselves in a way that is pleasing to you, not for show, not to be recognized for what we've done, but because we want to love our neighbors well, because we want to represent you well, because we want your kingdom to come. Because it's not about me. It's not about us. It's about you. So, Lord, do your good and perfect will. Let us not become weary in well-doing, for in due season we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Father, I pray that we'll keep that before us. So, God... Today, we remember the oppressed, the hungry, the widow, the orphan, the poor, the rich, the son, the daughter, the mother, the father, the sister, the brother, the imprisoned, the sick, the feared, the fearful, the foolish, the wise, the citizen, the foreigner, the loved, the unloved, all of who we are in every way. God, you accept us. And God, I pray that we'll accept you and follow what you say to do. You're a good and mighty God. And thank you for this time we've had together. And I pray that we will allow it to take root in us and bring forth good fruit in due season. It's in your son Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Go in peace.